You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next reader is a, if you're in the science fiction and fantasy field you, and you don't know who this person is, you can relax because you will soon enough. He was actually a, uh, he was, is not only a winner of two World Fantasy Awards, he was the guest of honor at the World Fantasy Award um, convention this year. Um, he's uh, the author of a sort of a cult favorite that I'm sure a lot of you ha- have heard of, which, let me know if I get the title right, it's the Dr. Lambshead's Guide, or who the, is it? The uh, Thackeray T. Lambshead uh, Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases. Which was quite a hit uh, several years ago. You and find in most medical schools now in the medical guide section. <laughs> <laughs> I feel also a certain kinship with him because he was a Peace Corps brat, and I'm a Peace Corps parent. My daughter just got back from uh, Thailand, and this, this guy was raised in um, Fiji. Fiji. Tough post. Tough post. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's, he's t- on tour now with, with two books, one of which is a nonfiction book, which we will discuss at some, um, we'll discuss during our, after the break. The other is the fifth and concluding in a, uh, it's a novel called Finch, and it's part of the uh, series set, what's the name of the city? Um, uh, Ambergris. Ambergris, yeah. right. I knew it had something to do with whales. Yeah. Um, but I don't really know much about this series. I'm going to let our distinguished next guest explain what this okay. is about because he's going to read from it. Let me introduce Jeff yeah. Vandermeer. Right. <laughs> I'm going to actually stand and hopefully hold the mic close enough for you to be able to hear me. A few programming notes first. Um, thanks to all of you for being here and to the Variety Theater for hosting this. Um, I've had a chance to see Rena in action the last couple of days, and I think she may be the hardest working person in genre, so uh, she's quite remarkable. I also wanted to give a shout out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also wanted to give a shout out uh, to someone from, uh, I think, the next generation of, of new voices. Uh, Christopher Davis is here. Christopher was a participant this summer in uh, the Shared Worlds Teen Writing Camp that, uh, that I'm the assistant director for, so it's great to see him here. Um, another programming note, I actually am on a uh, five-week book tour, 28 events in 35 days. And uh, <laughs> I don't know which, whether this is the eighth or the ninth event. Um, this is still the before picture of me. I'm sure in another, another couple of weeks I'll look much different, uh, maybe a little more frazzled, a little tired. Um, but I have a copy of uh, Book Life with me that uh, I've been having everyone that I meet sign so that at the end of this five weeks I will have a record, like a yearbook, uh, of, of my experience. And uh, regardless of whether you buy one of my books, it would be lovely at the end if you would sign this. And you can sign whatever you like. For example, one of my best friends, Tessa, um, actually crossed out my bio (laughs) and wrote, Jeff Vandermeer is a curmudgeon and does not get any ice cream. So (laughs) you're welcome. You're welcome to write whatever you like. Um, (laughs) um, Also, I should note that there's a small snafu and uh, Finch is actually, the novel that I'm going to read from tonight is not actually available here, but 
I do have Murder by Death CDs. There's a Murder by Death CD soundtrack to the uh, book. So if you go ahead and order it from Borderlands today, you will get a CD. And if they run out, you will get one with the book when you order it. So uh, you still can take advantage of that special offer. Um, there will also be call and response later when I get to the actual reading, so you'll get prepared for that. Um, this will be a veritable circus here. Um, <laughs> no complaining in front. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to tell you an anecdote first, as long as you don't mind. Do you mind hearing an anecdote? Okay. It's about a professional cockroach, so I don't know if that... Uh, the basically, Finch, uh, and I'll get to actually describing the novel uh, later, um, has some autobiographical elements. And uh, I think that a lot of people don't realize that fantasy can have autobiographical elements sometimes, very intense ones. Sometimes they're personal, sometimes less so. Um, so basically, uh, there's a scene in Finch that's inspired by something that happened to us on a book tour in uh, Romania. And uh, basically, our Romanian editors decided that they were going to show us the entirety of Romania in basically two days. And so we were uh, up in uh, like northern or central Romania at Dracula's castle. And they decided that we would wait. We woken up at like three in the morning, and we would go all the way down to the Danube in uh, southern Romania. And so we trundled into this uh, this series of vehicles, which were actually driven by the editor's bodyguards, because a lot of editors don't ask me why in Romania have bodyguards. <laughs> and uh, it took this uh, very harrowing trip to get down to the river by by noon, in which basically. Their idea of driving, and, and I, I, everyone else was driving this way, so I can't blame them, was to, to try to pass, and then when the bus is basically about three feet away, do this kind of Jedi mind meld thing back into the other lane um, without actually, you know, just kind of parallel parking back into the lane. So we were kind of frazzled by the time we got down to the river uh, to begin with, and we'd already been awake for, for six hours. It was also 110 degree heat, and our editors had not actually taken this boat trip themselves. So uh, we get to the boat, and it's an old Russian hydrofoil, 1970s. And uh, the windows do not open, and we're sitting on benches in 110-degree heat. And our first uh, inkling that there might be something even worse is that there are like 100 of those um, deodorant trees hanging from the ceiling, um, which are actually not helping at this point. They're, they're actually hurting quite a bit. <laughs> And so we sit down, and we make the best of it, and we're thinking, oh, we're going to be going down the Danube. This will be wonderful. And I start to hear this wrestling, rustling sound uh, coming from uh, beneath my seat. And uh, so I ask my editors, what, what is that? And the translation comes back, professional cockroach, which is somewhat disturbing to me <laughs> and unexpected. And, uh, and so as it turns out, uh, beneath our bench seats, there are boxes of cockroaches that they're bringing downriver to the fishermen farther down the Danube. You know, this would be a little bit odd, but the fact of the matter is that from growing up in the Fiji Islands, I actually have a phobia about roaches. <laughs> um, because one of the great things about a tropical location like that is that you can wake up in the morning, your eyes already kind of crusted over from allergies, and you can hear a crackling sound. And before you, you, you realize it, it's actually in your ear, and it's a cockroach that's trying to communicate with you in some way. Um, so, so, so it was a little unsettling to, to be in that situation. Uh, my wife, Anne, was kind enough not to point out any of the amateur cockroaches that were crawling across the ceiling. <laughs> um, this would have unnerved me even more. So we start going off on this boat ride down the Danube. And of course, as the boat picks up speed, um, it also kind of rises a little bit in the water. And I noticed that the crew has been rather careless because buckets and all kinds of other crap are flying past the closed windows. <laughs> and then as we reach top speed, 
literally parts of the boat are falling off the boat, <laughs> right? So first of all, I'm thinking, <laughs> are we going to make it down the Danube in the first place? And then we realize that uh, when we come to this next dock, that it's not taking us all the way down the Danube, that we're going in a smaller boat. And so we get onto this speedboat. Now, there are seven or eight of us and all of our luggage, which we've been taking all over Europe. And it's a speedboat that, you know, just like you might expect, it's not a very large vehicle or, or a boat. And so they, they put our luggage in the bottom, and then they arranged us like we were playing Twister on this thing. And so I'm like this. My editor is literally on all fours in front of me. My wife's hanging off like this. And, <laughs> and he, says, he says, don't worry, we won't capsize as long as you stay in these positions. <laughs> and so we stayed in these positions for about 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> and we were cramping up, but we were really seriously afraid that if we somehow you know, distributed our weight a different way, we would be in real trouble. Um, so we get to the location, and I swear to God, it is like an army has come through and raised the entire side of the, the river there. It's a blackened plain. And coming out of this blackened plain in the middle of nowhere is a facsimile of basically a Holiday Inn. I mean, because it looks like a facade. It looks like a Hollywood set. It doesn't look real, and as it turned out, it, it kind of wasn't. Um, so we get up to the dock there, and we're like, oh, we can relax, we can have a beer. And here's where stating your preferences on your blog may be a bad thing because they had heard that I like bird watching. And so they decided that we would go on a four hour <laughs> bird watching trip after already having spent 10 to 12 hours on the road and in these boats in these very strange situations. So we still thought, well, maybe this won't be too bad. There's this big party boat like docked right outside. And we're like, oh, we're going to go on this down the Danube. We can still have some beer. No, there were canoes with little outboard motors. And we spent the next four hours <laughs> bird watching on the Danube trying to be as polite as possible about it because they'd gone to great expense to get us there. And then we retired to the hotel, which had walls that literally you could punch your fist through and no water. And then the mosquitoes descended, so we couldn't go outside. <laughs> Um, and so then the next day, we had to repeat this process, uh, going back through the, uh, the same series of boats, playing Twister with the speedboat, and then getting on the hydrofoil again, except there was a complication. The Romanian Navy was doing maneuvers on the Danube, <laughs> and we got buzzed by an F-15 <laughs> along with some other boats, and we were told that we could not enter the harbor. Meanwhile, the Romanian Navy, uh, I have to report, is basically three rusting destroyers and then a dinghy with a couple of Navy SEALs uh, trailing behind. Um, so anyway, so we had to stop like two miles short of the harbor, and uh, we had to then disembark in a very unusual way. There were all these boats lashed to shore. So they're like literally like 20 or 30 rows of boats. I don't know if they were houseboats or what they were, but they were stationary and they are lashed together. So we had to take all of our luggage, <laughs> And we had to crawl through the doorways of all these boats to get to shore. And then once there, we had to walk with our luggage another two miles back into town. This left the mark, as you might expect. It was actually also a bonding experience, because uh, we and our, our Romanian editors are very, very tight now after going through all of this. <laughs> so, um, but it seemed like uh, something that would actually be very um, useful to turn into fiction. And, uh, and so I did, and I used it in Finch. And I'm going to read you a section from Finch that, that's based on that anecdote. Um, but I also want to describe what Finch is. And this is where the call and response uh, comes in. Um, uh, af when I actually indicate, I want you to shout out, I blame Vandermeer. Okay? So uh, to just to give you an idea, the back of the book it actually does a good job of describing, um, describing the novel. 
Um, tasked with solving an impossible double murder, Detective John Finch searches the for the truth among the war-weary war ruins of the once mighty city of Ambergris. Ambergris is slowly crumbling into anarchy. Yeah. <laughs> the remnants of a rebel force are dispersed. Their leader, the mysterious lady in blue, is missing, and citizens are being interned in camps. Yeah. It's all my fault. Collaborators roam the streets, keeping brutal order, but Finch also has to contend with new forces rising, like the enigmatic spy master, Ethan Bliss, and the contamination of his partner, White, who is literally disintegrating under this strain. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. I'm actually going to sit down for the reading, because I think uh, Rick here will be a little happier with me. Are you sure? Am I sounding okay? I can? Okay, great. Just a sip, and then I'll continue. So I, th I think it'll be pretty obvious from this. Um, where, the, where the inspiration uh, uh, came into play. Uh, in this scene, John Finch and his partner are going to this place called the Spit, which is a lashed together series of like 100 boats next to shore. And it's kind of an area for ne'er-do-wells and spies that's kind of lawless. And they're going there to meet this um, spy master named Stark. And uh, they're supposed to meet a guy named Davies who's going to take them there. And I think that pretty much uh, gives you all the uh, context you need. And in this case, they're actually still they're beginning the, the investigation of this double murder. And at the end, I'll tell you who all the characters are based on, because they're people you know. All right. Through the rain, the spit was revealing itself, gone with surprising quickness from a brown line in the distance to something with substance and texture. Rows of boats moored side by side by side, 20 or 30 deep. Still floating, bobbing, even as they were falling apart and half sinking. A leaky sovereignty, a chained together legion of convicts treading water. All of it shoved up against the shore, against the remains of the religious quarter. If the occupiers ever decided they wanted to truly cut off citizen from citizen, they'd burn the spit, place a wall between it and the religious quarter. They'd root out the native tribes from the quarter like so many weeds, shove them all into the HF zone and be done with it. The boat began to slow. Soon they bumped up against the docks, gently, prow-kissing wood. Finch jumped off the boat as it lay wallowing there, followed by White, took off their gas masks, breathed in the metallic air. No sign of Davies, an avalanche of other boats before them, a scattering of tall buildings, natural and not, dull glistening far beyond through the rain. Buckets tied to the dock, gurgled and filled, emptied, a blue dinghy, oily water, rotting planks. Got a plan if Davies doesn't show up, White? White didn't answer. A bald man appeared at the edge of the empty docks, weapon holstered, just appeared. Finch couldn't tell where he'd come from. White drew his gun for both of them. Face like a boxer's, the nose wide from repeated blows, scar over the left eye, under the right eye, maybe the same knife stroke. Barrel chest, thick arms, wearing a blood-red vest over a dark green shirt. The man came forward with hands held in front of him like he wanted to be handcuffed. Something was in his hands, though, like an offering. He dropped what he'd been holding onto the ground, a wooden carving of a lizard caught in some kind of trap. The man said in a misbegotten blend of accents, I'm bosom, Davies couldn't make it. Close enough now that his face was like a carved oval bone, scrubbed clean of anything except directness some sort of spice on his breath, a smirk Finch didn't like any more than the name. White gave Finch a glance, knew White was thinking the same thing. Bliss had named Bosun as Stark's right-hand man, someone who didn't flinch from torture, 
who seemed to enjoy it, who'd helped wipe out Bliss's whole team. What happened to Davies, White asked, stepping back to create a little space. Finch faded to the right so he'd be out of White's line of fire, kept his hand on his belt near his holster. Davies couldn't make it, Bosen repeated. Stark's waiting. Come on. Bosen started walking back toward the maze of gathered boats, didn't seem to care about White's gun. Finch wondered who might be watching from the row of dark glass windows that formed the first wall of boats. What guarantees do you have, Finch called after Bosen, wanted to ask, what's with the lizard, you lunatic? Bosen, without looking back, none beyond this, we won't hurt you unless you try to hurt us. A deep rasp similar to laughter, him receding further toward the maze while the two detectives stood there. Finch stared at White. White stared at Finch. Are we really going to go in there? White asked. Finch looked back across the bay, saw how far they'd come. Who on the spit would risk angering the occupiers? Thought about how easy it would have been for them both to go down in a hail of bullets if someone waited behind the windows of the first line of boats. Shrugged. Just think of him as Davies if it makes you feel better, hiding his own unease. They stepped around the lizard carving like it might do harm. On impulse, Finch went back and stooped with a muttered curse, picked it up, as Bosen had no doubt intended him to do from the beginning, followed Bosen into the darkness. There's a short break. <clears throat> through the doors of boats, through many doors, always with sudden water between them, gray or black, depending on the shifting clouds above, the distance wide enough to make them jump, then narrow as a line of blue. As the boats rocked, lashed together by rope that groaned, a marsh smell, a fish smell, mixed with the odd old new smell of paint curled back in a snarl or crisply flat. Into spaces seeping water from old wounds, the texture of warped planks beneath their feet weathered in a hundred ingenious ways. Across decks that announced them through the creak caused by their weight, wood singing a dull protest, up or down steps always too deep or too shallow. Following the wide back of their silent guide, White the worse off for being taller, having to contort his frame into whatever shape awaited him. The doors got smaller, then larger, then smaller again, oval, rectangular, square, inlaid with glass, gone, leaving only gaping doorway and a couple rusted hinges. Once a flapping triangle of canvas with an eye painted on it in green and red that seemed to follow Finch's stumbling progress. And what in the hell is this supposed to represent? The thought came to Finch more than once, looking down at the whittled wood from Bosen, the trap, the lizard caught in it. The carving brought his thoughts to Seidel, the lizard that lay on the mantle in his apartment sometimes and sunned itself, made him, made him feel absurdly like Bosen had been inside his apartment. Who created such things? Who had the time? Bosen stopped suddenly, turned back to look at them from just inside a doorway. White ran into Finch before he could stop himself, lulled by the stilted rhythm of his progress. Finch just able to stop falling. What, are we there already, White asked, peering over Finch's shoulder, could feel his breath hot and thick. Bosen smiled, a thin smile, nothing humorous about it. They stood precarious outside the doorway, on a tiny deck, backs to a cabin wall, a trough of water lapping between boats, a heron croaking across the slate-gray sky. Toss your guns, Bosen said. Why should we, White asked. No guns allowed with Stark. Too bad, White said. Bosen said, drop them in the water or I'll leave you here. Framed by the doorway, gray water shadows leaking all over him, Bosen didn't look human, didn't look real. 
seemed to be receding from them while all around the sounds of the spit became stronger, like a drumbeat that faded in one place, picked up with a different tempo in another. White said, again, why should we do that? Because, Finch said, we don't know where we are, and thought, and if he'd wanted to kill us, he'd have done it already. Bosom's smile widened while White cursed said, do you know who we work for? And Finch thought, we work for monsters, we work for ourselves. As if in a dream, Finch watched himself toss his gun into the water. It entered like a diver head first. The water parted for it, disappeared without a splash. A kind of relief came over him, a kind of acceptance. The gun had been nothing but trouble. The gun had always caused problems. White gave Finch a look of betrayal, hesitated. Bosun receded further. White could shoot Bosun, then they'd be lost in hostile territory. Or White could miss, and Bosun would be gone anyway. Or White could get rid of his gun, and Bosun would leave them. But Finch didn't think that would happen. He tugged the gun from White's reluctant hands, threw it in the water as White muttered, A mistake, Finch. A mistake. A few minutes later, Bosun stopped again, this time inside an old tugboat. Finch right there beside him, back sore from stooping. White behind them, still in the last, much larger boat, exuding a muddled aura of defeat. Then he was gone. Finch could sense it, white there behind him, then not, a kind of wind or impact punching the air, a muffled shout cut off. Finch turned and saw just the outline of doorways receding back the way they'd come, nothing but shadow otherwise. Whirled round to bosom, deck rising and falling beneath his feet. Bosom stood there, arms folded, watching. Finch fought the urge to close the distance, to hurt Bosun, fought it, knew that self-control would save his life, maybe save White's life, knew now, too, that Stark didn't give a shit about retaliation, didn't care that people would be after him if he snuffed out two detectives. Where's my partner? Where are you taking him? Tried to keep his voice level. Bosun shrugged, said, doesn't want to see him, just you. White's not safe. We don't know where he's been. You'll see him later. Take off your shoes. Take off my shoes? It was unexpected enough to make Finch forget White for a moment. Shoes and socks need to see your feet. That going to be a problem? Why would I care about my shoes after giving up my gun? Over the side went Finch's shoes and socks, stood there hopping as he showed Bosun the bottom of first one foot and then the other, wondering where this would end, furious, worried, and scared. Another part of him looked down from a great height, puzzled. When did being a detective mean this? He was investigating a double murder, he was working for an occupying force that could make Stark disappear in a burst of dandelion-like spores. And he didn't have his shoes. He didn't have his socks. He didn't have his gun. Are we done? Finch asked. Impassive bullet of a head swiveling towards Finch. Dark eyes glinting. Turn out your pockets. Why? Bosom pulled out his gun. No good reason. Finch raised his left arm, palm up. I'll do it. I'll do it. There was a lot more than he'd thought a copy of the photo of the murder victim, a folded-up note from his girlfriend, Sintra, the first and almost only thing she'd ever written to him, his current identity papers, a few semi-worthless paper bills from before the rising, a strange coin notched along the edges that he'd kept for luck, a scrap of paper with nonsense words written on it. In the end, Bosun returned all of it to him, worthless. But he lingered on the scrap of paper far longer than necessary to read it, then Bosun was just a wide back again, a kind of door himself, leading Finch somewhere dangerous. Uh, a couple of just uh, 
short notes. Um, first of all, uh, he's checking his feet because there's kind of a nanofungal technology, and the gray caps uh, uh, actually kind of use you know hidden places for that. Um, the other is that uh, you didn't meet Stark in this scene, but sometimes writers have an overlay of other writers that are like part of the character, but not really more than just like a, a little bit of an outline, like a little bit of flavor added to them. And so uh, Stark in this book is, um, I must confess, I had Lucia Shepard in mind. And um, Ethan Bliss, I had M. John Harrison, and um, Buzan China Mieville. Um, so <laughs> thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.